0: All right, before we get into the main part of the video, I just wanna make a big disclaimer, which is, of course, the most important item of all for a purchase agreement, whether it's a stock purchase agreement, an asset purchase agreement, I don't care what kind of agreement it is, the most important item of all is how much are you paying for the business, period. If you overpay for a business, you could get everything that follows in this video right, and you'll be on the verge of bankruptcy if you don't full on go into a state of bankruptcy, and be filing with the state for bankruptcy. You don't want that, right? So make sure you buy the business at the right basis. That's not the point of this video. We're not gonna be talking about analyzing deals from a financial perspective. In this deal, I've made a lot of other content about that on the YouTube channel. Subscribe to the YouTube channel to get access to that content, of course, but make sure you're buying the business at the right earning multiple. Make sure you're buying the right business. That stuff cannot be understated, but it's not the point of this video. Though I will say, generally speaking, if you're buying a one to two to three to four to maybe $5 million business, about three times earnings is right around where you wanna be playing ball. But that said, let's talk about six key items to think about when you're negotiating a purchase agreement. Let's start right now. Hey, it's Jason here. And in this video, I wanna talk about basically how to negotiate a purchase agreement for a business acquisition. We're specifically talking about business acquisitions in that one to ten million dollar deal range size is that's where i have experience now i have a list here of items that we always think about when we're negotiating a purchase agreement this does not mean it's a comprehensive list in full sincerity this would be an hour-long video if we were to even really begin talking about all the things we look at and for me to really go even deeper we would need an m a attorney on this video as well. And I don't have that individual here. So we're not going to be able to do everything, but this is the 80, 20. This is getting 80% of what really matters, right? These may only be 20% of the terms to negotiate on that purchase agreement, but as the Pareto principle states, in most cases, 20% of the items will make 80% of the difference. And that's really what this is supposed to be for you. So number one, number one item I have here, is negotiate the AR into the purchase of the business. Whether it's a stock purchase agreement or an asset purchase agreement, which we'll talk about in a minute, when you should use a stock purchase agreement versus an asset purchase agreement. Either way, however, make sure you include the age receivables. Now for some businesses, this is gonna matter a lot. For others, it will matter much less. And the balance sheet will show you how large the age receivables are. But in either case, so that you have cash flow day one after you close the deal, the day after you close, I should say. In order to have that cash flow coming in the day after you take over, you need to include the aged receivables in your purchase of the business. Now, in many cases, if you buy the AR, you'll also have to buy the AP, the age payables. This means make sure that the age receivables are larger than the age payables. That is an assumption that underlines this point here: that the AR is larger than the AP. In the event that the AP is larger than the AR, it may be a, something to investigate in diligence, and it may mean that it's not a deal worth doing. But most businesses are going to have a larger AR than they are an AP, especially if the owner is pretty diligent about paying off his expenses. Age payables are bills that you owe, that you've yet to pay. And age receivables, by the way, are monies that you're owed that you've yet to be paid. So the name of the game is just to make sure that once you buy the company, you still have cash flow coming in. And that's where buying the age receivables is so important. That's number one. Number two, make sure you include all assets needed to maximize revenue for the business. Okay, so one thing that sellers will often try to do is they'll try to sell you the business, but not all of the machinery or the equipment or the trucks or the tools necessary to generate maximum revenue and i learned this firsthand with the first business acquisition i made out in nebraska i bought the basically the the business it was actually a manufactured housing community but what i did not know to include in that purchase agreement were all of the other tools and it was like a snowplow and a truck and all of the other inventory i got some inventory but i could have included more inventory i could have bought the truck with the property i could have bought the snow plow with the property all these other items that i would have loved to have financed along with the bulk of the the business acquisition i should have just thrown that stuff into the purchase agreement and included it in the acquisition had i done so i would have been able to stabilize the property and I, re- I really would have been able to stabilize the business opportunity more quickly the fact that I did not include everything needed to generate maximum revenue in the purchase agreement meant that in year one, I was having to get these final items and bring them in. I had to buy a snowplow, I had to buy a truck, I had to buy tools, I had to buy and bring in some more inventory. And so what I'm really saying for you is never buy a vehicle without four tires and without four wheels and never buy a business without everything it needs to generate maximum revenue. There's no need and no reason to buy the most basic version of the business, especially if you're financing it, but even if you're not, if you're gonna go that far and buy a business, then my recommendation is buy everything alongside that business that the business comes with. Buy all the accessories, unless these accessories are absolutely unnecessary for driving revenue, right? So in some cases, owners will have a $100,000 pickup that they don't even use for anything other than to take their kid to soccer practice. In that case, you don't need to include that $100,000 pickup truck. But if there are pickup trucks associated with the business that help generate revenue, then absolutely include those types of assets in the purchase agreement. This is a huge one, do not miss it. Next, and we said we'd talk about this and we will, stock purchase agreements versus asset purchase agreements. My understanding, and this is really where you need to consult with an M&A attorney as well as a CPA or a chartered accountant, My understanding is generally speaking, there are tax benefits from making an asset purchase. There are generally, from my understanding, tax benefits for buying a business through an asset purchase agreement, which basically just means you're buying all the assets and then you create a new entity to put that business in. Likewise, when you do an asset purchase agreement, you leave the liabilities at the door, the legal liabilities, right? So if you're buying just the assets of the business, by definition, you're not buying the liabilities, the legal liabilities, potential lawsuits in the past that may have haunted the business, things like that. So we generally lean towards doing asset purchase agreements as opposed to stock purchase agreements, but there are reasons when you would wanna do the opposite. And one real clear example is if there are long-term contracts that the business has that were made to the specific business and to the specific legal entity that you're trying to buy, In that event, you very well may wanna do a stock purchase agreement so that those contracts carry on with you as the new owner of the business. So that's an area wherein, and that's an example wherein a stock purchase agreement may be more advantageous for you. You can also do a 1038 H10 election, I believe is what it is called. And this is basically wherein each side gets to elect how they are buying and selling a business. My understanding, and let me actually do a quick Google research. A 1038 H10 election, I believe, is what it is called. 338 H10 election. That's what it is. It's a 338. And it's saying a section 338 H10 election may be made for a target corporation if the purchasing corporation has made a qualified stock purchase of a target corporation from a selling consolidated group. So basically I believe it's the idea that you get taxed as the buyer as if it's an asset purchase agreement, but the seller gets to sell the shares notwithstanding. It almost is a blend between an asset purchase agreement and a stock purchase agreement. And look, the punchline is you're gonna really wanna consult with your M&A attorney and your your accountant on your team to help really get your, your strategy clear on this matter. But at the end of the day, there are a number of ways from which you can get the best of both worlds between a stock purchase agreement and an asset purchase agreement, and it, it is called a 338H10 a three, a election. That's just one of these elections that you can engage in as a buying group to really set a unique precedent for how you're buying a company that basically blends the, the pros and the cons of both a stock purchase agreement and an asset purchase agreement. There are other types of elections, and your lawyer and your accountant will know more about those, but it's something you should be aware of. So think strategically about, do you want to buy the stock of the business, the shares of the business, or do you do you want to buy the assets? It's an important item when you're negotiating a purchase agreement. Let's continue. Next, negotiate a reasonable seller transition plan. Okay, Ostensibly, the seller has been running the business in the years prior to you buying it. So you need to negotiate a reasonable plan from which that seller is going to transition and basically how is the seller going to hand the reins over to you? How is the seller gonna connect you with the key personnel, maybe vendors or clients or suppliers? How is the vendor industry uh, movers and shakers? How are you going to really get the insight and the goodwill the seller has and take it over for your company? This is something you have to be thinking about for us usually what we do is we have the seller stay on for a year that's what we're doing now when i started i didn't do a lot of the stuff i'm talking about in this video but now i've learned and now we really like to keep the seller on for a year and that's a that's an important piece of the puzzle because if you don't sometimes you'll miss out on a lot of the insight that the seller has that can really help you be more successful that said there are scenarios wherein a seller is not all that good at letting go of the reins And this can be a complicated issue in and of its own right, because here you are a new entrepreneur trying to to make your mark on this business, yet the seller in some ways is resisting that, resisting change, so be wary here. Another item that's tangential to this is make sure you negotiate any licensing in the purchase agreement. So for example, if your business needs a certain license that the seller has, I would secure that license for free or on a highly discounted basis for the first year of, of operation. Try to get that license included with the deal included in the purchase agreement before you close. One of the last things you want to have to do is you close the business and then immediately you're scrambling like hell to get a license. Usually you won't even be able to get your deal financed if you don't have a clear licensing plan. But my point is make life easier for yourself and basically get the seller's license for the first year in which you're in business so that you have that first six months to stabilize the business and to just focus on what matters before you even have to think about re-registering with the state or with the county or with wherever for a new, renewed license before you have to go out into the marketplace and find a new license holder or you need to take the test to get your license yourself. Whatever your game plan is for licensing, I would basically get the seller to license you for the first year for free if possible, right? So try to get that seller to work for that first year. Try Try to get that seller to work for you during that first year at a reasonable rate Usually we do a thousand hours and we set an hourly rate for which we're going to pay the seller during that transition, transition, transition period. And I would recommend doing the same. Understand what the going rate for, uh, for somebody in your, in, your, in your industry is, and then try to strike a rate that's, that's quite reasonable for you as the buyer. And then lastly, and this is really arguably, I mean, there's more, but th- this is the last one we're going to talk about in this video. And we'll get to it in just a second. But first, if you're liking this video, thumbs it up, share your comments below, and subscribe to the channel for more business buying content. But that all notwithstanding, the last item I wanted to talk to you about here is seller finance and how to work seller finance into your deal. And the truth is, is it's based on how you're financing or buying the bulk, uh, or, or where the bulk of the money leading to the purchase is coming from. Is it a cash deal? Is it a commercial debt deal? Is it an SBA deal? Maybe it's largely a seller finance deal. My first deal I did with about 88% of the purchase price coming from seller finance. It's easier to get seller finance in a first position. First position means it's the first lien on the assets of the business. It's basically the bulk loan. Okay, it's easier to get a seller finance note for a real estate property than it is a business because the property has a lot of hard assets, whereas a business usually is more of a cash flow deal than it is a collateral deal. But in any event... Try to work some seller finance into your deal, either in the first position or the second position, right? So if you have a million dollar purchase, a first position loan is usually gonna make up between 65 to 80% of that million dollars. So that's 650K to 800 grand, maybe all the way up to 900 grand. Okay, a seller second note is gonna be maybe from 800,000 to 900,000. So it's from the 80th to the 90th percentile on the capital stack. It's on the back end of the capital stack and then maybe you put in five or 10 or 15% down in cash, and that would be how you would complete a deal. So think about where you're gonna work that seller finance into your purchase agreement and into your offer and into the deal. But get some seller finance in there somewhere for a lot of reasons. One, the bank loves it. Two, it gets the seller some skin in the game so that they're more invested in your success. Three, it means you have to put in less capital into the deal in most cases. And ultimately, it just allows you to get your deal done more easily and it gives everybody that skin in the game. And that's what lenders love and that is a buyer is what we love as well. So work some seller finance into your deal. I've talked a lot about seller finance on this channel. If you Google uh, Jason Paul Rogers, seller finance, you'll see a bunch of videos I've posted here on YouTube talking about different seller finance strategies, first position seller finance versus second position seller finance. Seller finance that's on hold for the life of the first position note. If you're financing through the SBA, you can put 5% of a seller of the purchase price on hold for the life of the first position note. And the SBA, if you're doing an SBA finance deal, the SBA will categorize that as equity in your deal. So that means basically, as opposed to having put in 10% cash into the deal, you only have to put in 5% cash into the deal because that other 5% gets held by the seller and stays on hold for the life of that first position SBA note. And now you basically just cut the capital requirement in cash that you need to put down on the closing table, you cut that down by 50%, from 10% down to 5%. So that's a powerful one as well. But look, with all of that being said, again, thumbs the video up if you liked it, share your comments below. What would you like me to talk about next? Subscribe to the channel, and I'll talk to you in the next one.